Stanford University. My name is Abbas Emilani. Uh, I am the director of the uh, Mugaddam program in Iranian studies. And uh, as they say in films, I hope this is the beginning of a long friendship. Uh, this is really the first time that the Iranian studies program has uh, done anything with the uh, Abbasi program. And uh, it, this is possible, this has been made possible because of the infinite generosity of uh, Shahzad Bashir, my very dear friend and colleague. Uh, when he became the uh, director of the Iranian, of the Islamic studies program, uh, we had uh, a British conspiracy. Uh, we had uh, uh, some conversations about how we should, where there are overlaps, try to uh, work together. And he kindly agreed to begin this process of occasionally working together uh, by giving a talk for us on Persian in Pakistan, many dimensions of a cultural relationship. And as we were sitting there, we were planning our next uh, uh, conference. Hopefully next year we'll announce it. Uh, before uh, uh, turning over the uh, uh, meeting to Professor Bashir, let me uh, make a couple of other announcements about our upcoming events. On March 9th, Tuesday, uh, at 6 o'clock, in the same hall, uh, same uh, uh, room, uh, we're going to have Roger Cohen, uh, prominent journalist from the New York Times, uh, talk about theocracy's limits, Iran at the precipice of its contradictions. Uh, those of you who have been reading him, he is a very interesting uh, columnist and fairly dedicated and passionate about Iran. We've had him here before, and uh, there were so many people who missed his talk and asked us to bring him back that we really, as they say, he's backed by popular demand. Um, on March 16th, we're going to have uh, Hushang Shahabi and uh, talk about the Islamic Republic and religious diversity. He's from Boston University, a very versatile, very interesting uh, scholar who's going to be talking about the diversity of religious experiences in the Islamic Republic. Uh, one other announcement, some of you might have seen uh, Mohsen and Omju's performance as a part of the Asian uh, Music Festival, Stanford's Asian Music Festival. Uh, we are going to have another event by Namju on April 10th, Saturday, April 10th. Uh, the purpose of that event is more uh, than anything else uh, fundraising. Uh, we're trying to uh, uh, extend uh, um, Jews' stay here as long as possible. And uh, we have had uh, a couple of, succeeded in getting a couple of uh, grants approved for that. And uh, this is our way of trying to match some of those uh, monies. Uh, I, I don't think for our Stanford community, Shahzad uh, Bashir needs an introduction. Uh, suffice it to say that if you read his work, if you look at his messianic hopes and mystical visions, uh, what attracts your attention is not just the depth of his erudition, but the diversity of his sources, the diversity of uh, 
his curiosities and his ability to easily traverse from the literally to the historical, from the political to the mystical, and from them cohere a kind of a narrative that uh, makes sense of out of some of the most uh, enigmatic aspects of uh, uh, Islam and Shiism. Uh, his work on uh, the Nur Bakhshiye, I think, is the standard text on that subject, and uh, uh, it is uh, my very great honor and privilege to have him join us here tonight. Thank you very much, Dr. Milani. That has to be the nicest introduction anyone has given to me. Uh, I think because most of the time when I go and give talks, um, the people, um, they, they respect me and all that, but they don't, can't, they don't actually have the um, depth in the subject matter to actually introduce in this particular way. So, so I'm really, really very grateful, and I am delighted as well, and also hope very much that this really is the beginning of um, substantive collaboration between the Mogadam program and the Abbasi program. Um, <clears throat> and even when I'm not the director of the Abbasi program, uh, my, my own work deals so much more with um, Iran than any, any other place, Iran and Central Asia, in, uh, and with Persian literature that, that I have um, deep and abiding interest in this. Um, <clears throat> so I'm very grateful to the program and to Dr. Mirani for um, asking me to talk about this topic. Now, um, I have to begin with the confession that I, this is not something that I specialize in, Persian in Pakistan. Um, <clears throat> but it is a topic that has always stayed with me because I am by birth Pakistani, and I ended up studying things in Persian. So going back and forth to Pakistan, uh, and the question of what exactly is the relationship, and knowing the deep history of it, I, um, basically I, was, I couldn't but make some observations regarding uh, what is the situation at the moment? Um, <clears throat> and so when, when uh, Professor Milani and I were talking about various topics, etc., this came up and he said that this would, be, this would make for a, an interesting talk, um, which I hadn't thought before because it was basically a kind of a private matter to me until then. <clears throat> now, uh, one place where I did encounter some details about this was um, that I am on the board of an organization called Association for the Study of Persianate Societies, which wants to look at things Persianate uh, with centered in Iran, but looking at Central Asia, India, Turkey, even as far as Bosnia and things like that, wherever Persian literature was produced. And they did their biannual convention in the city of Lahore um, in 2009. So one of the interesting things there, which was rather depressing, was that the only place from, for which no paper proposals came was Pakistan. There were proposals from India, there were most of them from Iran, about 25 people came from Iran, people came from Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, um, Armenia, Georgia, etc., etc., etc. But there were no uh, papers from Pakistan except on art, and those were uh, basically people who were talking about art who couldn't actually read Persian. So it was a little depressing. Uh, and so, the, um, and what I'm going to try to, is to um, indicate through this talk is, in some ways, how has that come to be, um, uh, given where Pakistan is, um, uh, historically speaking, and the great significance of things Persian uh, to the land on which Pakistan as a state uh, exists today. So I will talk very briefly about historical um, resonances, um, and then mostly I want to talk about the contemporary situation. But one has to begin with a history because of um, 
um, just just to mark the fact that um, 150 years ago, Persian was the literary language of all the area that is today Pakistan, right? So in 150 years, we have gone from uh, where anyone who was literate would know Persian to um, very, very few people knowing Persian today. So this is a massive cultural transformation that has happened in this part of South Asia um, uh, that has to do with British colonialism, but also having to do with the creation of the state of Pakistan and its various policies. So very briefly, um, this is the tomb of um, Ali Hujviri, who's in, in Lahore, which is uh, known in Lahore as, uh, he's known as Data Ganjbakhsh. Um, this is a man who wrote the famous book, Kashf al-Mahjub. He died in 1077. This is the earliest known Persian treatise on Sufism. And uh, this man, Ali Hujviri, is kind of the patron saint of the city of Lahore. Um, all great businessmen, when they arrive in Lahore, the first thing they do is they make a beeline to this shrine and pray over there. So it's very heavily connected to prosperity. Uh, the shrine is heavily funded by um, the Pakistani state. Um, also, it has lots of endowments of its own, which the state has appropriated, so hence it utilizes it as well. Um, now, but, but here too, the fact of the presence of um, Ali Hujviri shrined in Lahore marks Lahore as a city with a deep uh, connection to things Persian. Uh, in later centuries, um, after the, uh, the 10th century, the, the general uh, description that is given is when Sufis from Iran or Central Asia would arrive in uh, South Asia, the first place they would go to is this shrine. Um, and there are lots and lots of poetry about the shrine written by many, many visiting uh, Sufis, etc. Now, uh, to talk about this, one has to, of course, begin with um, geography. Um, and so you can see, um, I actually didn't bring a pointer, but you can see the Pakistan um, on this map. Uh, <clears throat> and as I was saying, uh, Pakistan is very much connected to um, other places in where Persian has been the predominant language of culture and literature, Iran, um, Afghanistan, and going up into um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, etc. <coughs> and um, it's, now, what happens, the first change that comes with respect to Persian is um, the creation of essentially modern India through British colonization. Um, from 1757 onwards, the British start to take over certain parts of South Asia, uh, actually initially in parts that are not shown in this map on the East Coast, um, um, what is now Bangladesh and uh, Calcutta and <coughs> Bengal, which also had a long and a very long tradition of Persian literature. And basically, if you want to do any kind of Indian history before the year 1850 or so, there's no way out of knowing Persian, no matter what part of India that one is working on. But with the coming of the British, uh, uh, once the, the British crown takes over in 1857, and actually slightly before that, the one thing that the British do is that they change over the um, language, official language, to English. Uh, before that, the imperial language for South Asia is Persian. So basically, because of that, um, anyone who wanted to be part of the bureaucracy um, in South Asian states, um, of which there were very many from Mughal times onwards, and actually before that too, but certainly from the 16th century onwards, um, would have to work with Persian. The changeover into English um, is very significant, therefore, because it actually decreases the valuable and the, the value of, of high literacy in Persian. 
the British promoted local Indian languages, Urdu and Bengali, etc. Um, in the case of Urdu, um, the British were the first people to actually write the grammar of Urdu. Um, so although the language has a much longer history, it was essentially, uh, it was not um, a high literary language until the, um, the displacement of Persian in the uh, early to mid 19th century. <coughs> Now, um, so there is a there is a process that starts going on, but until the the early part of the the twentieth century, um, Persian was still very much uh, a presence. Certainly, for the generation of my grandparents and my parents, um, they actually studied Persian in schools, uh, and my father could actually make a pretty good sense of Persian. Um, he started. He was born in 1936, so he basically went to schools in the very end of the British period. But even then, uh, this was a significant enough um, presence. And, and my grandfather um, could recite immense amounts of Hafez by heart. Um, and he liked to um, drink a lot. Uh, and when he was really, really um, in a after having drank a lot, then he would lecture me occasionally about the fact that what I was studying in school was completely and totally pointless because unless you were studying Hafez and Saadi, what was the point of studying? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I, I remember these talks very much um, because of the, the way in which um, they suggest a kind of cultural conditioning which was a part of it. I mean, and this is not a man who actually read Persian regularly, etc. Uh, he was he worked mostly in English or in Urdu or other languages that we spoke. But there was something about the cultural value of Persian classics that was deeply instilled in him. Now, um, this kind of um, presence of Persian starts to to um, um, actually diminish um, in the 20th century, but it actually uh, diminishes particularly rapidly after 1947, after the, the independence of Pakistan and India. Uh, because what happens then is the partition between India and Pakistan. And one um, subsidiary effect of that partition is that the cultural centers that were the centers of Persian literature and high Persian um, investment in, in Persian literature um, get separated. So what I've done on the map here is to show you four of these centers. On the very top is Lahore, which is in Pakistan. Then we have Delhi, Lucknow, and in the bottom in South India, Hyderabad. Uh, these are major si Persianate cities <coughs> that were imperial cities. And because of that, they had a deep connection to Persian literature and culture. With the partition, Lahore is separated out from all the others. And what starts uh, is uh, the process of the creation of a new state. And in particular in the case of Pakistan, part of the difficulty is that the nation really has to be invented uh, because it's a very new idea as to why this should be a separate country. And part of that idea is that there is going to be investment in Urdu as the national language. Uh, and so in that sense, Urdu is the one that has to be made into the new literary language, lit the classical literary language. Classical Urdu literature has been around for a while. Um, but. Uh, because of that, there is a kind of diminishing of the status of Persian in this part of South Asia, uh, I think, because of the rise of Urdu. Now, Urdu is spoken only by about 10% of the population of Pakistan is its first language. 90% um, uh, uh, basically learn it as a second language. Um, now, one of the, th the biggest 
points of contention between what is now Pakistan and what is Bangladesh, which was the same country of Pakistan in, in, from between 1947 and 1971, was the issue of language. What was going to be the national language of the country? And Urdu was essentially imposed because it was seen and portrayed and basically propagandized as the literary and the high literary language of Indian Muslim culture which again is a very interesting choice given that if one really wants to go to that, it would have to be Persian and not Urdu. Um, now, but because, uh, I mean, eventually uh, what happens is Bangladesh goes away for many different reasons and becomes a separate country, um, but part of that has to do with the linguistic politics of the new state. I think so, I'm just trying to um, suggest that uh, about the significance of change of language. Now, they could have actually chosen Persian then, rather than Urdu, of, for which there was much greater commonality in many ways between Bangladesh and what is now Pakistan, because um, Bengali history, etc., is also written in Persian until the 19th century. <clears throat> And the ultimate language that matters in the end is actually English, <laughs> anyway. Um, so Urdu is sort of there, um, uh, but but uh, there is a dis this displacement. Now I want to show you um, the relationship between Urdu and Persian and its closeness. So this is the uh, Pakistan's national anthem. That uh, was the way this was made. Was in the country became independent in 1947. The music for the anthem was composed first. And then there was a national competition for writing the, the actual text of the, the anthem. In 1950, uh, this was approved, and it was the first time it was played was when the Shah of Iran came to visit. Um, now, the interesting thing about this uh, text is that um, there's only one word in it, which is marked with the green ka, that makes it into Urdu and not Persian. Um, now, it's not very good Persian, uh, that, the no, no question about that, but technically speaking, uh, in terms of actual morphology, Urdu and Persian are that close. But the relationship is hierarchical. That is to say, you don't need to know lots of Urdu to understand Persian, but you do need to know a lot of Persian to understand um, high classical Urdu or, um, or literary Urdu very well. Now, in many ways, this, this word is inserted specifically, actually, to make this into Urdu, um, because it could well have been understood as being in, in, uh, in Persian. And, and this, um, if one is to read this as Persian, this is a particular time. Sorry? It's the one ka. Right, right. I mean, and, and uh, orthographically, there are other, other, other issues, too. Actually, there's... Uh, yeah. I mean, idiomatically, there is many reasons why this is more Urdu than, than Persian, the way that things are constructed. But technically, that's the only thing. So it, if it were Nezom Sarzameen Epok, that would make it Persian. That one sentence, Pak Sarzameen Ka Nizam, is what, what it means. Uh, <coughs> Um, so here too, you can sort of see the, the closeness of between um, uh, between um, Persian and Urdu, and the, the entangledness of the two languages. Um, of the great um, poets of classical Urdu poets going to the 19th century, um, 
for example, the most famous is uh, Asadullah Khan Ghaleb, um, who wrote in both Urdu and Persian. And he is very famous for his Urdu, not so famous for his Persian. But he himself thought that he should be better known for his Persian than for his Urdu because of the cultural um, weight attached to the two languages. Urdu was a vernacular, it's, it's Indian, um, whereas he prided himself of being of Turkish descent and things like that. And, and Persian was much more important. Now, um, what we have over the course of the history of Pakistan is a, then a, a gradual diminishing of the role of Persian through, um, because of a number of different reasons. Um, now, it has already begun, in, uh, as I said, in the 19th century with the adoption of English, and over the course of the 20th century, uh, and it accelerated by 1947. Now, what, what really changes in many ways is from the 1970s onwards, where the cultural politics of Pakistan undergo a very significant change. Um, from the 1970s onwards, late 60s, 70s onwards, there uh, starts to be very significant labor migration to the Arabian Peninsula, to the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Oman, um, Kuwait, Bahrain, etc. Uh, the people who are going there, they also then come back and um, they have cultural influence because they, uh, they're affluent, etc. And because of that, in part, um, the Arabic starts to rise. There's a kind of, um, uh, there's a kind of, uh, almost in the, in the Pakistani cultural sphere, there's a competition going on between Arabic and Persian. Um, and there is an issue of alignment, which alignment also then aligns to the rivalry between Iran and the countries, the Arab countries of the Persian Gulf as well. And those, those rivalries get played out in Pakistan in many ways in, in proxies um, from the 70s onwards. Uh, <clears throat> um, now, one of the interesting things is that um, now if you, uh, the past few times I've been to Pakistan, going to even to Chinese restaurants, the, the music that's playing is Arab, uh, which is very, very peculiar. Um, uh, because uh, it, it's, it's, but it's a marker of this kind of cultural change that happens. <clears throat> um, also from the 1970s onwards, um, for various reasons, the public media in Pakistan started pushing Arabic. So there would be daily lessons for anyone who wanted to learn Arabic being given on TV, as compared to this where Persian is um, actually declining. Um, when I was going to school in the early 1980s, um, when I first started in sixth grade, and we had options. This was an English medium school in which we were taught Urdu. But then there was the option of foreign languages, and the, the options were Arabic and Persian. Um, but by 1984 or so, Persian had been eliminated. It was the only option was Arabic. And that had partly to do with the Afghan war and the, the religious policies of General Ziaul Haq, very closely tied to um, uh, Saudi Arabia and um, other American allies in the, in the Persian Gulf. <coughs> So um, now, in the same time, of course, in 1979, of course, the revolution happens. And that gives a particular inflection to Persian as well, because Persian is very closely tied to things Iranian um, from a Pakistani perspective. And uh, certainly in the early days, there is some hope on the part of the revolutionaries that the revolution is exportable. And Pakistan is a good place to try to export it to. There's a significant Shi'i population. Um, so there's a lot of propaganda going on. And as a result of that, essentially a kind of proxy war develops over the 1980s and 90s in Pakistan between Sunni and Shi'i factions of various types. Um, <clears throat> 
that is funded or at least supported culturally uh, by Saudi Arabia on the one side and the government of Iran on the other side. Now, the details of this are actually fairly um, uh, very difficult to ascertain in terms of records and things like that. But certainly in the popular imagination, uh, the Sunni-Shia divide from a Pakistani perspective mapped onto Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and that's how it was seen. Now, I've been to Iran only once, and I was amazed by the numbers of Pakistanis in Iran. Um, I, I was going from here because I was studying, and it took a hell of a time to get a visa to Iran, which was really ironic given that the Iranian intersection sits in the Pakistani embassy in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Uh, but it was it took forever and waiting now but if you're trying to get an Iranian visa from Pakistan it's not very difficult at all um, because there is a tremendous amount of um, uh, traffic of um, of pilgrims uh, going to various shrines uh, to Mashhad to Qom etc now along with this pilgrim uh, routes there is also um, the Iranian government essentially supports um, the education, if you were a Shi, um, to, to be educated in um, cities like Qom and Mashhad. And this, this is the most numbers of Pakistanis that I came across was actually in Qom. It's the only place other than Pakistan where I've seen the Pakistani rupee being traded as a major currency in the streets. <laughs> At least that was the case in the mid-90s. I don't know what has happened since then. I, I think that things have changed quite a bit since then because of the mutual... Uh, animosity or uh, mutual distrust between the two states. Um, but certainly at that time, this, there was an immense amount of traffic going on um, back and forth. Um, as actually, things have changed because when we were doing this conference in Lahore, the hardest thing was to get the visas for the Iranians. I basically had to um, use a cousin to, to try to, to, get, to convince the Pakistani authorities to give um, the visas to the Iranian academics who really had no reason. They were basically coming from universities. And when I talked to the Pakistani um, visa counselor in Iran, um, what he said, I was trying to say, you know, how can this be? We have this tremendous cultural relationship. They're coming to the city like Lahore, which has this history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what exactly is the threat of professors going? And he basically said, I can't go into details, but there are other issues involved with respect to Iranian visitors um, to Pakistan. From Iran. Oh. Um, yeah, from the US or Europe, there's no problem at all. It's only from if they're coming from Iran because of suspicions attached to different types of activities um, that, are, uh, that are sponsored by the, um, but that are perceived to be sponsored by the Islamic Republic. <clears throat> Now, so this is the cultural political background, but part of what happens then through these processes is that Persian becomes localized to Iran as a foreign language. So there is a diminishing of the actual, of the historical um, kind of roots of Persian within the land on which Pakistan actually is, right? So there is, a, in the political process then, um, actually um, uh, works in a way to alienate things Persian from the, the larger Pakistani milieu, and it works very much to confine things Persian and even the language to things Shi, uh, which is a very new development because the majority of Indian states that for whom Persian was the language were actually Sunni, obviously, right, um, and that that were in part of in parts of South Asia. <clears throat> so the recent politics does have a lot to do with this. Um, now, um, oops, sorry. 
Now, what's the current situation? Uh, just to give you a sense of um, what kind of activities does the Islamic Republic sponsor in Pakistan. Uh, so this is the, the breakdown. So there's one embassy in Islamabad. There are five consulates in different cities in Pakistan. And there's seven cultural centers which are very, very active all over the Pakistan, even in not so major cities. Uh, <coughs> Um, there is also uh, an Iran-Pakistan Center for Research on Persian, which was actually set up in 1971. Um, and it was essentially um, renewed in 1979. Then about a couple of years ago, it went defunct. But now the latest thing I've seen in uh, news is that it is being revived again. And, and um, this center published a lot of uh, uh, material. And they also were responsible for um, generating interest in things, Persian and Persian language and literature throughout Pakistan, which they did um, try to do quite a bit. But the biggest thing that they did, which is truly massive and which uh, I think is not appreciated enough uh, with respect to the study of Persian and Persian heritage, is this thing, which is the library attached to this, this uh, Iran-Pakistan center in Islamabad. Um, and what they did in the 1980s and 90s was um, they would uh, purchase any Persian manuscripts that would come on the market. Now, the reason this is very important is because in 1980s and 90s, of course, the Afghan civil war is going on um, and the Soviet occupation. So there's immense numbers of private libraries in Afghanistan that get destroyed. And so there's, an, there's lots and lots of manuscripts coming out of Afghanistan that are being sold in Pakistan. And one of the charges of this institute was to buy these up. Um, so they have an amazingly huge collection of uh, Persian manuscripts, um, and particularly having to do anything to do with Central Asia. Um, there are many manuscripts that are entirely unique, that are not to be found anywhere else, that are, are now at this library. Um, <clears throat> and interestingly enough, the people who did this um, are um, uh, it, for, for their purposes and for their way of working, the revolution mattered and didn't matter. There is one particular man by the name of Tasbihi, who was um, the in charge of this library. And he had been appointed to this uh, place in the mid-70s, so before the revolution. He stayed on in his job, and he made it his personal kind of um, uh, mission in life to try to preserve this material. Um, he had, when I met him uh, a few years ago, he was um, completely fluent in Urdu and, and could go back in Urdu and, uh, between Urdu and Persian. His kids had grown up in Pakistan. Every year he went to Iran once on a bus, which is a very long and torturous trip <laughs> over mountains and things like that. A really, a, a really a great character as a person. But partly his, is his personal passion involved in this. Also the great Iranian scholar, uh, uh, what's his, I forget his first name, but Monzavi actually wrote a, a catalog of some of these manuscripts. So there is a large catalog of uh, Persian manuscripts in this library, which is about eight, 11 volumes or so. But that is actually a very small portion of what they have, uh, because that was done many, many years ago, and they kept buying it more and more. Now, the, but the problem with this library, its riches are immense, is the, is, um, their interaction with the rest of the world are determined by um, the attitudes that flow from the Islamic Republic. So the degree to which they're actually willing to cooperate or not at any given moment varies. Um, so the few times I've been there, um, 
uh, Tasbihi is very happy in meeting and all this stuff. The director who is appointed by the Iranian foreign ministry, um, the moment he finds out that anyone with an American connection is around, he leaves. Uh, and um, So one can purchase the books, and as long as one has a personal relationship with Tasbihi, one can actually look at the manuscripts, etc. But they're not part of the um, international circuit of libraries, um, which is too bad because of the the stature of this library. If it were available fully, it really would be remarkable. And and the it might actually change, because one of the things that happened in India is that the Iranian government now is uh, sponsoring the microfilming of all Persian manuscript to be found in India in this massive institute that they've set up in uh, in New Delhi. So they might do something uh, with respect to this as well, although the relationship with Pakistan is more more complicated for obvious reasons. Um, <clears throat> uh, now, I wanted to show you. I'm glad you asked. That's precisely what I'm going to show you. <laughs> um, so I looked at um, at the, the cultural center in Lahore, which was the most active ones. Um, also, the one in Karachi is very very active. Um, so on their website, these are the events that they list as to what they actually sponsor. So I broke them down into these three categories. Although the religious events and cultural events are obviously intermixed given the perspective of the Islamic Republic. Uh, <clears throat> now on the so religious events, they are they very much portray themselves as the as the um, the caretakers of Shi'is. Uh, and obviously, the Iranian state acts like that in other places in the world as well. But in Pakistan, certainly, they, they um, I think gradually it has come to be a mutually constitutive relationship that there is um, much greater connection to Iran among, uh, in the, in, among Shi'i groups in Pakistan, uh, partly through the educational processes of various types. Um, they also, on the second level, however, they do have educational activities that are really connected to Persian language and literature. They have sponsored, um, they will sponsor people to go and do PhDs in, at Tehran University in Persian. So if one looks at the rosters of Persian departments in Pakistani universities, um, if you look at, say, 1960s or 70s, most of them have PhDs from um, either European or Indian universities. By now, most of them have PhDs from Tehran University. So there is a cultural shift that has happened uh, because of that. They, they provide grants of various types. So um, as you can see in this list here, now the, 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 the starting of the uh, Persian department at Lahore Women's University is an entirely new thing. This did not exist. Uh, whereas the, um, uh, the Oriental College is, goes back to 1877. It's a very old institution with long history in per Persian things. But um, Oriental College essentially has gone to, um, uh, gone to nothing in Pakistan because uh, the Pakistani state system of universities provided very little support to uh, universities and colleges that were doing things like studying Persian. They were much more interested in technology and things like that. And so e even if you go to Oriental College now, it's, it's, one feels a little bit worried going into the building given the state it, 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 it is in. Um, <clears throat> But suddenly, in recent years, in the past 10 years or so, they've actually started to reinvent themselves with close connections to the Iranian Cultural Center and the fact that now um, they have six people teaching Persian language and literature there, out of whom uh, five have PhDs from Tehran University. Um, so 
and there is a there, that the same type of shift is going on now when we look at the types of things they're doing in early periods they have to do with indian history indian literature etc now more and more what they're doing with respect to persian is research on things iranian so um the last thing i saw was a book on uh, colloquial persian in tehran streets and things like that that they're doing now on the one hand it's actually a very good thing because they're treating um you know one of the odd things is that the countries in that part of the world don't tend to study each other. They study either Europe or we study, sit here and study them. So to actually treat Iranian culture and Iranian language seriously is, is a very good thing. Um, but because of where it is happening, there is a kind of shift that has happened in the sense that Persian has become a really foreign language. It is not uh, connected to the land or, uh, that, that one is sitting on. <coughs> um, Okay, and then the, you can also see they do art events of various types. They're basically, they're part of the art scene, uh, the kind of cultural scene in cities like Lahore, Karachi, Islamabad, etc. And they participate in, in um, various ways with, uh, with a kind of religious Shi'i uh, inclination. <coughs> now, uh, so, so this hopefully gives you some idea of um, how things have developed. Now, I wanted to share a couple of things um, regarding the presence of um, Iran and things Persian in contemporary popular culture, um, <coughs> um, which again reflects the same themes that I've been talking about, but uh, with some more color to them. Um, so this is a poster um, from 2007, uh, and it's uh, made by this Shaheed Foundation um, that is based in Pakistan. Uh, the person after whom this is named was a, a 12 Shi'i alim who was uh, killed in 1988 in, during a Sunni-Shi'i um, um, altercation um, and has become uh, kind of renowned um, because of his um, prominence at the time. Um, he was the head at that time of um, the, uh, the main Shi political association in Pakistan. Now, the interesting thing here is, of course, the, the use of the image of Khomeini uh, and what it says in Urdu um, on top actually is a statement attributed to Khomeini where he's saying um, that I have basically accomplished all that I wish to accomplish um, in my lifetime and I'm leaving things in good hands as I pass away. So it's, it's supposedly coming from the end of Khomeini's life. But the way it's placed obviously makes a very interesting kind of statement. Uh, it's almost reminiscent of the famous statement attributed to the prophet at the last uh, Hajj where he says that um, I have perfected your religion for you and I'm, I'm going. Um, now Khomeini does have this kind of a stature um, in among the Shi in the Shi'i community in Pakistan. Um, uh, and so that also then feeds into the um, uh, the Iranization of Persian and things Persianate in, in Pakistan. Uh, and the posters of Khomeini, et cetera, they're very, very common um, all over um, uh, <coughs> Pakistan. Now, Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm not really sure whether Khomeini said this or not, uh, but 
that I mean the way it's portrayed is irrespective of whether he said it or not, right? Because of the significance, as you as you mentioned, of how how is it to be treated? Um, now this is a very ordinary photograph, but I wanted to put it in there um, because you can see this is a gathering of uh, Shi'i scholars. Um, and part of the thing that is very striking in, in Pakistani Shi'i circles is the Iranization of um, dress of Shi'i alims. Um, and, uh, and that has to do, again, with the educational processes that have come to be um, and the use of certain types of robes and et cetera, um, very much in the image of the fuqaha that are uh, in Iran. Now, this particular photograph comes from <coughs> a region called Baltistan, <coughs> which is a very small region uh, in the north of Pakistan. Um, it's uh, strategically very important because it's part of the uh, disputed territory between India and Pakistan. The population there is very small compared to the rest of Pakistan. It's about one to two million, which in a country of 160 million is pretty small. <coughs> that would be like you know one section of Lahore or something like that. Um, but it's the only administrative division in, uh, thank you, in Pakistan that is majority Shi'i. Uh, and because of that, there is a particular connection to, um, to Iran. And there, when one goes to the cities there, um, where you, know, you see people walking on the streets, and one can s see the kind of echo of, of Qom um, very, very clearly. <clears throat> and in those places, I think, um, Directly or indirectly, the presence of the Iranian state actually is really quite palpable because of the networks of scholars and, and um, that that uh, uh, that function in a kind of international scene. Um, and basically, for anyone, any Shi'i scholar in Pakistan to really claim um, that they are uh, important and have status, they would have to have an Iranian connection. Uh, at least that's my, I haven't done a full survey, but that seems to be the case when looking anecdotally at things. Now, okay, I'm, so let me pause this for a second. So what I'm going to show you is a, a noha, a dirge, um, that is um, on Zainab, the, and the sister of uh, Imam Hussein. And what you will see here um, is that he begins with Persian and then he moves on to Urdu. Uh, uh, and it's a Persian pronounced in a very particular way, as you will see. Uh, <clears throat> but this, again, is a, is a concrete indication of the connection between Shiism and Persian. I jane baradar, humide dile Hussein, bad as khuda, mi suparam budu, in khanuma, in tiflaha, yare numa, ya gamzada, Zainaba. Sinabam, 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 Sinab
Okay, now it goes on to on to Urdu, as as you can see. But here, I mean, I this is just an indication. Um, this is very common um, in these types of uh, recitations to use Persian as essentially a kind of sacred language um, because of the connection between Iran and Shiism. Uh, <clears throat> now, the other thing that happened is. Um, this actually becomes very communal uh, as well. So uh, the the whole um, business of uh, of lamenting Hussein and Ashura and all this um, that that in South Asia has a particular tinge to it because it happens in the context of a majority that does not actually do it. Right. So very different from the case of Iran, um, and it it can become highly charged, it has led to tremendous amounts of violence. Um, actually, I think less than a month ago, about 50 people died in Karachi and a bomb that went off outside uh, an Ashura uh, celebration. So both the performance of um, this type of religiosity and its reception actually are highly charged matters in Pakistan, all then connected uh, in this particular way. Uh, there are also particular groups in Pakistan that actually um, use Persian as their primary language. Um, uh, there's one particular, it's, they are small groups, but um, the Hazare of um, Baluchistan, uh, who use Persian as their primary language, and, and they are often or can be treated as traitors, as national traitors, um, um, because they are Shi'i, um, and this kind of connection. Uh, the reason I this comes to mind is because in uh, 1984, I was actually in Quetta uh, because my father worked for a bank and he was there and I was in boarding school, but we were visiting over the summer and suddenly one night the whole city goes ballistic and all you hear is gunfire um, all over the place. And what turned out was that um, essentially what was perceived to be a, a, a Hazara revolt um, was uh, put down by the army very, very ruthlessly. Um, and it was seen as being a proxy Iranian thing happening in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, I mean, obviously, I was young, and I have this um, vivid memories of this um, because of that. But it was really quite amazing when all night long all one heard was automatic gunfire and then when when uh, for after that uh, for many many years there was an absolute curfew in the city of Quetta in the internal in, inner city of Quetta um, where and there would be these um, armored vehicles army was basically in charge of the whole city inside and inside the city um, the amount of destruction you could see, but basically walls were completely see-through because of bullet holes all over the place. And they, I mean, I, I'm sure they carried out massacres of the Hazara um, in the context of, after that, it became really problematic to have the facial features of Haza uh, Hazara. Um, and for some reason, someone thought that I looked like a Hazara, so they told me, okay, don't take this kid out to the city at all because there could be pogroms or the, something could happen. So these things are intensely charged in the Pakistani context. Um, uh, uh, the this, this Sunni-Shia business. Now, um, after that kind of a, a charged tale, um, something uh, s uh, less uh, stringent or less uh, le lighter, and um, which is um, something about this man, uh, Muhammad Iqbal, uh, very famous, and in some ways he is the, the last of the great Persianate figures um, from South Asia. 
because he wrote in equally in Urdu and in Persian. Um, died in 1938. He's regarded as the, the founding father of Pakistan. Obviously, he had nothing to do with it in many ways because he died in 1938. He might have espoused the idea in some form or the other of the creation of a, of a state like this, but he was certainly not a Pakistani because no Pakistan existed when he died. Um, now, he, however, has a tremendous status in Pakistan. And so every day on Pakistani national, on the state television, um, there are quotes from Iqbal that suddenly appear on the screen at various times. Um, and sometimes from his Persian poetry, but most, more often than from his Urdu poetry. Now, most recently, a Pakistani pop singer has decided to sing one of his Persian uh, compositions. Um, the, the last picture that they show of Iqbal is a very famous one because he's standing with, uh, standing with him is his son, uh, Javid Iqbal, who became, later became the Chief Justice of Pakistan. Um, and so, it's a, uh, so many of the images that are being shown of Iqbal actually are reminiscent very much of the nostalgia about Iqbal and, and that are, this is a common aspect of Pakistani identity. So I thought this would be the best thing to end because here then we have English trumping in Persian as the universal language and uh, there could be nothing better than an English conspiracy to end a talk on, on <laughs> things Iranian. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's more religious Arabic. I think it varies considerably depending on the part of Pakistan one is in. So I think if where there are large numbers of Arabs, it, then it is, I think, um, like in, uh, in, in the frontier province until recently, etc. then there might be a more a different kind of modern standard flavor to it. But for the most part, it, I would say it is uh, religious Arabic that, that matters. And it's not taught very well. Pakistani education system across the board is really bad. So they don't teach anything well I mean, really, um, but it's, it's more just a question of the kind of the relative balance between Persian and, um, uh, and Arabic. Um, now, um, on the question of the Islamic Republic, yes, Pakistan has been an Islamic Republic, although the debate in Pakistan has been going on for much longer than it happened in Iran. And what it means very, is very different than, than obviously, the, the Iranian case. You're quite right about the, the pronunciation of uh, Tajik. And even when the, the, the Noha singer, he sounds like an Afghan, uh, the Zainab. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, so, the, the, and, and, and certainly, you know, like I'm thinking of um, people like Johnny Bek Muradov and uh, 
Shebnam Suraya, etc., who do sound much more like this as the Tajik. That's that's a very good question, actually. And uh, what I think that from uh, I don't know um, what whether there is a recent change or not, um, but I think in some ways, um, from a Pakistani perspective, what is happening internally in Iran is irrespective of the cultural prestige of Iran and particularly its connection to Shiism, uh, right? I mean. Uh, so one, it would not be very hard, I think, or would, it wouldn't be very surprising to find people who are both equally supportive of those who are against the regime and who are those who are for the regime. Um, and that has to do with the way um, the foreign place is constructed as a place of authority. I mean, another example of similar things happening in India earlier is that um, in the early 20th century, there is a big movement uh, to protect the caliphate, which is in support of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman um, Sultan. Um, this is happening at the same time when everyone is completely supportive of also of Ataturk. Um, and they, this does not appear as a contradiction in the Indian materials, whereas obviously those two are actually opposed to each other. But it's just because that is the place from where authority is coming, or which is the, the hope. So something similar happens, I think, in the case of Iran. The other issue would be um, uh, there, there's a class issue involved, I think. Um, and, and in that way, I think it might go wrong in the same lines as the class um, support for various aspects of the, the support or lack thereof for the Iranian regime within Iran, and that might align similarly with respect to Pakistani. So lower class might be more inclined to, to support um, the, uh, whereas the upper classes would not have much sympathy for it. So, yes. It's. Uh, no, it has been. It has a much longer history in South Asia uh, because, um, for two reasons, um, uh, actually, there in the city of Lucknow already in the late 18th and early 19th century, there's a big rivalry between two authors of these types of um, dirges, Mir uh, Anis and Mir Dabir. These two are seen as the in. They are two of the biggest names in classical Urdu literature, and their specialty was writing these types of things. Now, because of the popularity of that literature, there is a long development of um, performance that goes with it as well. So it has a very long history. Now, the other thing that happens in South Asia um, is that there is no passion play. So there is no tazia in the Iranian sense, but what you have is um, uh, are, uh, basically a majlis in which a uh, an orator actually tells the story, blood drop by blood drop, in, in a particular style of Urdu, etc. And that uh, prose narration is derived from the poetry and feeds back and forth with this, uh, with this, this type of um, poetic performance as well. 
So in that case, I mean, part of it might actually be there. There might be influence going from South Asia into Iran uh, for this kind of media production, um, which also would make sense with Bollywood and stuff like that. So. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And actually, I think that uh, people, even uh, all the people you're mentioning, including Fez, um, it's, it's inconceivable for him to write that poetry unless he is intimately familiar with Persian. One of his stepmothers was actually an Afghan, so he grew up with Persian uh, in, in, at his home as well. I think what has happened is that um, essentially the aesthetic criteria for poetry are changing. So if you look at very recent Urdu poetry, first of all, it has gone to free verse. Um, that has changed some of the quality of it. Now, furthermore, the even in terms of usages and the kind of um, aesthetic affect of poetry, it has gone away from the Persianate models. And it has, um, it, now, uh, th what, what that produces then is that there is a lament about it. Um, so for example, when I was trying to do research for this, one thing I came across was that in the, uh, there was an interview in the, in the newspaper The Nation with two uh, uh, significant contemporary poets and during that whole interview, what they're talking about is that the fact that Persian is no longer available means that we cannot write good poetry. So they were, these people are echoing exactly what, what you were saying uh, with respect to the thing. Now, I think that you know, if, if we move away from aesthetic judgment of that nature, I think what it shows, though, is that still there is immense amounts of poetry being written. But essentially, there is a new language that is developing that has a more strained relationship with the Persianate background than was the case even up till, up till the 1980s. I mean, even a poet like Parveen Shakir, um, I mean, sh she can write poetry that is completely and totally Indian. Um, but there are other poems by her that, that are so thoroughly Persianate. And she died only in 1994 and at a very young age. So, even uh, until recently, I think it's, it's the process is still going on. Um, um, but but there's some 
I think the availability and the kind of sense of belonging and ownership of the language has changed a little bit. First, I, I mean, if I if I talk as a historian, I can say, well, things are changing. Talking as a matter of personal taste, I completely agree with you. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. The, the Hazari that I know are, they're in Baluchistan, in the city of Quetta, where there were, there were whole um, uh, neighborhoods of Quetta that were all Hazari. Um, and, um, and they spoke Persian to each other, and then they would speak Urdu, other languages too. So they were culturally marked in a, in a particular way. I think there are some other populations as well. In some ways, it's a similar situation as, as we have in Afghanistan, where these little pockets of um, Hazari there as well. So. I mean, essentially, you know, the, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is, is a non-border. Um, and so very similar phenomenon exists on both sides. But I don't know of what is the most recent uh, situation that is going on there. Um, I know the tension between Sunni and Shi is very high in Pakistan right now. Um, it's, it's a, um, lots of things have happened recently that are very unpleasant. In everyday life, that's a good question. Um, what has happened is there is a, um, a and, and speaking anecdotally, and not so much in terms of any particular research I've done, but there is a much, much higher um, awareness of sectarian difference. So whether you are Sunni or Shia, it didn't used to matter that much. I mean, people knew that whatever, you know, you were different. But now it's become a highly charged atmosphere. So identities have become much, much more rigid, uh, partly because of the various cycles of violence that have gone on since the 80s and 90s, and uh, now going on for almost 25 to 30 years. Uh, and then there are political parties that are attached to the differences. So um, in the case of the Sunni um, uh, case, there is this uh, um, group, it's called Jhangvi, and they're from a particular part of the Punjab province from Jhang, and they are militant Sunnis who will attack Shi'is uh, in various places. There's immense use of arms, and um, in, for example, in this area in the north, um, in Gilgit, where Shi'is are a significant presence, what these Sunni groups did was they basically, and this is a very, very poor area, they showed up there with their big SUVs mounted with um, machine guns on top. And it led to a bloodbath. Um, this happened first in the late 80s and then again over the various times in the 90s. Various Shi scholars have been assassinated, even at places like Islamabad Airport. Um, so there is a, I mean, there is a sense that the Pakistani state colludes to some degree with um, with the suppression of uh, the Shi'is. Now, why does it so? It's a complicated matter, whether it has to do with Iran and geopolitics and the relationship to Iran, or it has to do with the fact that Pakistan is dominated by Sunnis because it's majority Sunni state, etc. There are multiple motives working 
throughout. And then when it happens in local situations, like in the city of Karachi or Lahore, then it has to do with local politics and ethnicity comes into it. Shis are certain ethnicities, Sunnis are others, etc. Okay, that's a, that's a long and complicated <laughs> question. Um, I will be, try to be very brief in terms of pointing out some of the reasons for it. Um, first of all, I think that one of the issues is that um, Pakistan perhaps does not have any more percentage of radicals than any other country. It just happens to be more in the news. So if you go to Pakistan, certainly when I go, I don't run into any radicals. Um, uh, so it, it is concentrated in certain areas, etc. So partly it's an issue of perception. Now, but there are other issues. One of the issues with Pakistan, where Islam is a constant uh, point of discussion, is that it's a country ostensibly set up for Muslims of South Asia, right? So there is a, there is a reasoning, uh, Islam is a problem. Islam is an issue from the beginning of the country. And it's an issue that, that has never been resolved. Um, now, if from the get-go it's a country for Muslim, but it turns out most Muslim, there are more Muslims who live in India than in Pakistan. So that produces, well, are they all supposed to come here, or what? What is supposed to be the identity? Then the breakup with Bangladesh, you know, also majority Muslim. There again, the question is, what exactly is it that unites us as Muslims? So ideologically, uh, the identity of Pakistan, particularly with respect to Islam, has always been um, uh, highly contentious, and that is, feeds into this. But I think the biggest issue with respect to radicalism has to do with the Afghan war uh, and the, 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 the Soviet invasion of 1979. Then you have 10 years of everyone in the world and their cousins pouring in money and arms into the country. I mean, I personally remember seeing in Quetta rocket launchers being sold on the streets. Uh, at that time, no one cared, and everyone was all for providing the arms. right? Um, and then once that war ends, then everyone leaves, and basically the country erupts. Right? Now, they, because of the very close relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan culturally and, and the fact that the border is not really a border, um, all of those things that happen in Afghanistan have an automatic influence in the, everything that goes on in Pakistan. So I would suggest that it has really to do with uh, political developments over the past 30 years or so. I mean, one of the, my favorite anecdotes for this is the, at least in one report that I read, the, the textbooks that the Taliban were using were actually concocted in Nebraska and um, by, by the CIA operatives, et cetera, when, being the, when jihad was a very good thing in the 1980s, right? So in some sense, Islam is not a constant. Islam is produced in various historical moments, and there was a particular Islam that was produced in the 1980s in 
and on the borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan. But once it's produced, it has its own historical trajectory and it cannot be controlled. And I think we're seeing the long-term effects of all of that proce those processes that went on, which are partly related to the things I was talking about in the sense that General Ziaul Haq's religious policies were very closely tied to his desire to have legitimacy in the country, and the way he did it was by, uh, championing, by calling himself the champion of the Afghan Jihad. And so in that sense, you know, when the state is pushing cer certain things and it's going into schools, then it acquires a legitimacy of its own. Um, so I would say it's not so much about Pakistan, but but very particular history that has happened in the past three decades or so. Oh, sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I, uh, there is, um, I think, I don't know of any statistics. I think that uh, it would be very, very small, um, uh, but I don't know directly the statistics. With respect to private, um, it might be happening privately through families and things like that, uh, but for the most part, um, in terms of the public sphere, what is visible is really the activity of the uh, Iranian cultural centers, which basically provide instruction in Persian for free. Uh, um, and then some of these other universities and colleges in Pakistan that have suddenly gotten interested in um, Persian departments like Lahore Women's University and things like that. Um, um, yes, less than 1% probably. Uh, very, very small. Uh, That's, that's a very, very good question. Um, yes, there are some Urdu translations of, of this material now. Um, now, but that causes a, a bit of a problem. I mean, how do you translate a language that is so close? <laughs> uh, basically, you move around prepositions and postpositions in various ways, and it, it produces an interesting kind of thing. Where there is a lot of translation actually into Urdu is uh, Persian historical sources about South Asia. Uh, because um, basically, you know, we have this peculiarity that anything before 1850 is simply not accessible <laughs> um, if you have lost a language. And so th there's a lot of translation of that of varying quality, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but it is for popular consumption. Uh, um, yes. Sure, sure.
Yes and no. I think that the, if there is a rapprochement, it would have to go all the way through Afghanistan. Because the, the, part of the, the issue with Pakistan is that both the boundaries to the Indian side and to the Afghan side are highly problematic. Um, they don't really mark anything uh, in terms of cultural difference or other other issues, right? So you can't really stop at the Afghan boundary, uh, uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan boundary, in part because the Afghan state doesn't even acknowledge it as a boundary. Um, the Afghanistan has never acknowledged that as the real boundary between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's a disputed boundary because it was set up by the British, etc. Now. <clears throat> What you are suggesting actually can happen relatively easily by normalization of borders, right? If they say, okay, well, these are separate countries. I mean, they're separate countries in Europe. That the boundaries don't really matter. People go back and forth, etc. And so, in that sense, that normalization could happen if there is political will on all uh, on all different sides. I think in Pakistan, one of the issues that that uh, is there, which is an um, aside from cultural issues, is an economic issue. If if the Economic, if the relationship between India and Pakistan were to become normalized, Pakistan would become the Mexico to, to United States. It would be, I mean, it would be in completely dominated by Indian capital, Indian industries, and this is why, in on the Indian side, the greatest interest in normalization is among the uh, uh, the, the the industrialists because it's a huge market. It already is the probably the biggest single market for Indian cultural products because they're all over the place. In in, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, <clears throat> so that, I think, is what partly drives the difficulty, aside from the rhetoric that goes around um, about the... I mean, India and Pakistan are in no way possible are they equivalent countries, right? I mean, more than a billion people, 160... I mean, India is a completely different scale of a country. And so a lot of the Pakistani anxiety, actually underlying it is these economic, social... Um, a kind of concerns um, that that restrict any kind of um, further development, and the fact that if as long as the country exists, um, it's in the interest of the elites for it to continue existing in this particular way, particularly the Pakistani army, that basically uh, is the only power in the country, and it is in, in its interest to have the enmity with India so that they can live very very well as they have done over the past few decades. So there are other kinds of issues involved as well, I would say. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.